Hello, hello, hello. I'm Ethan Mummy. I'll be your host today on this episode of Ethan with Swords. It's good to see you all again. Been a while since I've done one of these. Been on a bit of a hiatus. Uh, getting adjusted to the quarantine. I hope you all are doing well. Hope you all stand safe. Practicing safe social distancing and all that. Staying inside. I know it's kind of boring, but we gotta do it. We gotta do it for the good of everyone else. Um, we are here today on this, on this, on this beautiful day. It's wonderful out. Um, good to see you all. I hope you all doing well. Hope you all staying healthy. Washing your hands. Often. You know. Um, it's been a while since I've done one of these. I'll admit, I've been gone a while. I apologize. Things have been weird. I'm back. I'm back. How you doing, guys? It's me, your boy. Uh, I think today's episode is going to be a bit longer than I usually do, just because to give you guys something to listen to. Uh, and also because it is a particularly um, complex, kind of intricate topic. Ethan, what is the topic today? I'll tell you. It's, it's shields and armor. It's, we've been focusing the past couple episodes on the things that make you dead. Well, let's focus on the things that are supposed to keep you not dead. Let's, let's take the other side of the coin. Because... People always, you know, when you think warfare, you think weapons. But actually, more often than not, weapons evolved alongside armor and had to keep up with armor. A lot of the different, um, a lot of the, um, advancements you see in weaponry, especially in the medieval times, happened and, and they, they had to be developed in response mostly because armor and the ways people were protecting themselves had gotten better. So that's what we're going to be doing today, you know? It's, uh, it's going to be a long episode, but um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. This is a really interesting... I always, I always love this topic because it's really interesting. Um, just like looking at... especially... I love, I love always um, looking at armor designs, like fantasy armor designs, and kind of laughing to myself because some of them are just ridiculous. If you look in fantasy, and you and you have my kind of my eyes where you're looking at things and you're wondering, hey, would that work? Is that accurate? Is that like is that functional? Like I cannot watch fantasy movies anymore. Or I can, but it's just they're so funny to me because I'll see like swords or armor or tactics, and I'm like, yeah, sure, that'd work. That wouldn't get you dead instantly. Um, and I, I kind of hope that's what I'm doing to you guys. I kind of hope, you know, while you're while you're spending time with me here, you're learning, you know? You're learning to see the world through my armor's eyes. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Let's hop right into it. So, generally, armor and shields have kind of been present for basically the entirety of human history. Because when you're fighting and a guy that you're fighting, and he wants you dead, and you want him dead, and he's got he's, and he's got a long pointy, and he, and you got a long pointy, and you're trying and you and you're poking. Well, the best way to protect yourself is simply putting something in between you and the other guy's long pointy. That was not a euphemism. That was just 
head out, head, head out of the gutter, guys. But, um, because, I mean, sure, you could just try and dodge, but the thing about that is, the thing about moving out of the way and, and, and trying to, like, you know, dodge out of the way is that takes energy. That takes movement. That That is going to tire you out way faster. If if you're on the battlefield and you're and you're doing all these crazy acrobatics and you're moving and, and you're dodging around, you're gonna be tired out way faster than if you had just had something to protect you outright. Cause it's a lot easier to just stand there and take a hit and not be hurt than it is to try and just not take the hit. So armor and shields were a natural progression of that. Um, shields and armor were have been around for centuries. You see them in all, basically all kinds of ancient cultures, and you know people use what they had generally. Uh, different different places, different um, different locations, had access to different materials, and that is reflected in their weaponry and armor. So I'm going to kind of I'm going to take you through a timeline of the most commonly used armor. You know, I'm going to. Um, we're going to start in the earlier Middle middle Ages, move on to the later Middle Ages, and see, uh, or medieval period, see how things changed. So, generally, things start simple, with light armor, right? And if you think light armor, simple armor, the armor that an everyday Joe would have, um, a lot of people think leather. You know, leather armor, that's kind of something that's been imbued in us yeah, through like through fantasy books and movies and TV shows and video games, that leather armor was a thing to have. And while leather armor did exist, uh, totally, 100%, like boiled leather, for instance, um, was, a, was a kind of armor where if you... There's a, there's a special treatment process that you can put leather through to make it essentially rock hard to the point where... It, it can take these kind of concentrated hits from weapons. But the thing was, leather armor, while it did exist, was nowhere near as common or as prevalent as many people believe. And there's a very simple reason for that. And that is, well, where do you get leather? Well, you get it from a cow. It's the skin of leather is, is cow skin, most commonly. Um, if, you, if Minecraft taught us anything, it's that. But, um... Well, to get leather, you have to kill the cow. But... But, more often than not, that cow is a really important thing. Because think about it. What could, Cows back in the day were massively valuable because they gave milk. And... And with milk, you can make cheese, you can make cream. If you had a dairy cow in prime condition, and they were producing milk at an average rate, no way in hell are you going to kill that cow. That cow is a cash cow, literally. That thing is making money. Because you and your family can, you know, drink the milk, you can eat the cheese, use the cream, but also you can sell it. You can sell it at a market. Cows are a massively valuable resource, and not everyone had them. So, not your common peasant in everyday medieval life, they're not going to have access to leather armor just because of how valuable cows were alive. 
Now, what you'd see way more often, this, the kind of armor that you'd see on the everyday working Joe, was something called gambeson. Now, what gambeson is, is it's linen. It was layers and layers of linen in a sort of a tunic sort of shape. And a lot of you, I'm sure, are thinking, well, it's linen, that's cloth, that can't be too effective. You would think, but what they did was, it's layered. It is layer on layer on layer of linen. Sometimes you'd put a, a lining of wool between the, between the layers of linen, but it was thick enough and sturdy enough, the linen itself was sturdy enough, that it would sustain damage, you know? Because back then, when gambeson was prevalent, gambeson was prevalent all throughout the Middle Ages. It worked, and you knew it worked, because it was everywhere. You know? I mean, even you can test this. Take a particularly, um... If you take a particularly fluffy or thick sweatshirt, even, and you try and cut it just by, um, putting pressure and dragging a knife across it, you're not gonna cut all the way through unless it's a crazy sharp knife, or you're applying you know, insane amounts of pressure, or if you're just straight up sawing through it. You can test this, go right now. Don't hurt yourself, don't do anything stupid. But you can take, like, take like a raggedy beat up old sweatshirt that you have, one of the big fluffy ones, and you can, you know, draw a knife across it a couple times, and it's not gonna do too much. It'll be protective. And that's what gambeson was. Normally how gambeson was shaped is you'd have a tunic protecting the, um, the chest always, Usually had sleeves. There were some sleeveless variants, but you didn't see those as often. And it would be tied with a belt, and it would come down to about uh, knee height, with a bit of a, a bit of a skirt type fixture, kilt, if you will. And you see, you see that a lot because, and then you'd also have gambeson or heavy linen leggings and pants. Now a lot of people see the uh, skirt. Or the key, uh, the bottom bit, which is basically a skirt, and um, that too had a. You see, that's an interesting thing about Alamo. If you look at its design, every piece was built to be functional. Every piece had a had a reason for being there. In Gambeson's case, you see, the weakest parts of Alamo are always going to be what are called um, the body's pivot points, the joints. So that is things like the elbows, the knees, the hips and the waist, the shoulders. Places where you have to move around. And the reason those are weakest is because there's less armor there. If you had too much armor on, say, your shoulders, the shoulders were one of the biggest weak points in armor, if you had too much armor on there and it was too, um, too tight or too defended, too defended, then you couldn't move your arms as much as you would be able to without it. And that's a huge disadvantage. Range of mobility is massively important in fighting, especially in close combat with swords and such. So a gambeson skirt was very functional in the fact that it protected an often very exposed, very um, kind of a, da a dangerous area, that being the waist, the groin, the, um, the hips. You gotta, you gotta move that like leaning forward and back, that's a very mobile area of the body. So there couldn't be a lot of armor there lest it restricts movement. And that's why what I call war skirts were such common things. A, a war skirt, if you will, allows protection of that very vulnerable area 
while still allowing lots of movement. You can run in a skirt, in a war, in a war skirt. You can jump. You can do all these big, you know, movements that you'd need to do because it's less restrictive while still keeping yourself defended. And that's the biggest, that is always the end game of armor. As much protection as possible, as sturdy protection as possible, with as little penalty to movement as possible. So Gambeson was massively, massively important. But that's not, you did see occasionally leather armor. Now, leather armor was a bit different. It would often be in, you know, when you did see it, because you did see it every now and again, just again, not as yet nearly as common as fantasy would have you believe, and leagues less common than Gambeson, which is, Gambeson's kind of the big, that's, that's what you'd see. That's what, like, everyone had at least one Gambeson at home if you lived in a particularly, um, dangerous time period, you know, we're, we're battling, where war might have been more common, you, you used Gambeson. Um, I'm going to take a detour to talk about general, the general shape of Alma and some things you normally see, and I'm going to be using some, um, some, to use you some vocab, buckle in kids. So, generally, it's all, this again, this all ties back to most protection, least penalty to movement. So the general shapes you'd see in armor were things, you'd see things, uh, the main piece was called a cuirass, a curious, a cuirass. It, that's the big chest piece. And always, almost always, in many pieced armor, the curious, cuirass, the, the, the chest body bit was one piece of armor. You wanted as few pieces of armor as possible, because the more individual pieces of armor you had stuck together meant that there were more seams and more weak points to land a hit in through. So the, the uh, curious was always, almost, well, almost always, again, caveats and, you know, some things are different. Well, a, normally a single piece that protected chest, stomach, and a little bit of the sides. And it had a sort of a tunic kind of uh, feel to it. And that was the point of the curious. The curious was to protect the ever important, you know, vital bits. Heart, lungs, um, kidneys. Sucks to get hit in those. But that's, that's what, um... The curious also refers to the piece on the back. It was normally two separate pieces. You'd have the front bit and you'd have the back bit and you kind of put those together over the body, over the torso, and then you, they'd be kept together with things like belts, uh, leather and all that. But that's the main chest piece. And then, because the curious was only the torso, it was uh, tunic shaped. It cut off at the sleeves because, again, the shoulders that's where you're seeing lots of movement. If you watch modern-day HEMA competitions, uh, historical European martial arts, if you if you look at those long competitions and you see just some of the guards they use, just some of the positions of swords, they're moving all over the place. They got they got they're going high, going low, and it's all to change up 
where the blade is coming from to try and throw off your opponent to get in a hit. So the shoulders, it is critically important of freed up for as much movement, of, movement as possible. But that means that the shoulders were one of the biggest targets of attack. Now, um, a lot of what you see is um, when you had... We'll get, I'll get more into this later, but I'll touch on it now. When you had, late, much later in the period, when you started getting metal armor, you'd have a metal armor, a metal cuirass, but then you'd also have a gambeson underneath to protect the bits that aren't as protected by the metal. Now this leads to the shoulder pieces, the sh uh, shoulder nuggets, I used to call them before I knew the term. Uh, those are called pauldrons. Pauldrons are those big plates you normally see on armor. And another thing that fantasy always gets wrong is you see these giant, heavy, ornamental-looking pauldrons. No. Stop it. Why? Can you imagine? Imagine, because armor it gets heavy. Like, metal is heavy. Can you imagine having a 10, 15, 20-pound piece of metal on your shoulders all day? Do you know how much that would hurt your back? Do you know how much that would suck? No. I, I always hate seeing that in fantasy with these giant, like, spikes or, like, a lot of things you see, like, skulls on the shoulders. And it's like, congratulations, you've now, you've now stopped yourself from moving your arm up at more than a 45 degree angle. You look, you've, you've, excess, you've successfully hobbled yourself. Congratulations, you're the buffoon. Pauldrons, the shoulder bits, kept your shoulders safe, and what they would normally do is they extended down. They would protect the top of your shoulders, but then they'd extend downwards in front of you and often overlap with the cuirass to provide as much protection as possible, because that front part of the shoulder is where you're going to get attacked a lot. Uh, moving on, you have you know, you'd have the um, the gauntlets. There's the word I'm looking for. Gauntlets um, refer to specifically the gloves of armor, and they often could extend. Uh, they could extend up the forearm. Some versions did. Some versions didn't. It all depends on who you're looking at and at what time period. But generally, you had a um, some sort of hand protection. Because again, and uh, gauntlets are kind of exempt from the uh, motion, motion rule, because you're not, you don't really need that fine, a lot of fine finger movement when fighting. Like you do, it is very complex. Like you do need to use your fingers, but you don't need to move them as much as your shoulders or your hips. So, um, a lot of the time, gauntlets were a lot less uh, mobile. Now. There are full gauntlets, which are more like full metal gloves, or there could be something like half gauntlets, or demi-gauntlets. Now what those were, was they were just there to um, offer protection to the back of the hand, usually. It would extend past the wrist, and it would extend and it would stop at, right at the knuckles. And that was because you'd normally have your fingers wrapped around the blade, and you can kind of 
show that metal bit back of the hand to the enemy and, and, and have decent protection. The appeal of demi-gauntlets instead of full gauntlets is that it allows more finger control, which for, and which for later for more uh, fine, more technique-based sword fighting is useful. Uh, moving downwards past the curious, you have legs. What do you do with them? You protect them as much as you can. Why? Legs are kind of important. Uh, I mentioned earlier battle skirts, really popular. See those a lot. Uh, Normal. What you'd lo see a lot of time is that you'd see a bit of a metal skirt extending down from the curious, and that's what would protect your the hips and the groin and it would be uh, one piece of metal. Uh, moving forward, further down, you'd see a lot of times uh, specific pads and armor bits for the knees, because those are important. And you'd also see boots. Now, boots, um, armored boots, are... They were often less armored than the rest of them. Some people just used usual, you know, Maybe steel-toed or just like heavy work boots, sort of, uh, sort of, sort of boots, because boots. Saying boots a lot, it's kind of, it feels like a nonsense word at this point. Um, boots, they need to be light, because if you have, like, a lot. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you can attest if you've worn really, really heavy work boots that were too big for you. They t it tires you out to walk in those for a long period of time, and you couldn't have that. They needed to be light and slimmed down, and offer more range of mobility. And most and they could not, and you could not be exhausted just from walking. Um, what you'd see a lot is um, armor plating, so you'd have like normal, normal leather boots. And then you have a a kind of layer of armor facing out, like um, like it would just be a plate, like a plate of steel on top of the boot, and that'd be it. Because one, it needs to be light, and two, you're never really gonna be stabbing at your opponent's foot. Like that's not something you really would do too often, just because a it leaves you wide open to attack. And it's out of the way. The feet are always... It's, it's much easier to move your foot out of the way of a strike. So boots, generally, not that heavily armored. You'd also see um, uh, greaves, which are the bits protecting the shins. Uh, what you see a lot of the time are uh, metal plates that would be the greaves and the foot protection in one piece. Um, in, in later plate metal, these would be called sabatins. And that's what that would that whole thing would be. So that's generally that's generally the shape of armor. That's how it went. Um, those are the those are the, the big terms you need to know. Now moving on, there were a lot of different kinds of armor that you'd see in the in the medieval period. Um, another one you'd see a lot is this kind of armor called scale scale mail, which I always it's fun to say. Say that scale mail. A scale mail, or scale armor, or scale mail armor, is uh, a kind of armor that it was usually over a um, 
chainmail. There's the word. Can't think today. We'll get to chainmail in a little bit. I know you're all itching to talk about it. It was uh, usually over chainmail or gambeson. Again, gambeson. Love you, boo. And it was little bits of overlapping metal, like a fish, like a fish's scale or a reptile scale. And what it did was, it allowed a much greater range of mobility in the torso while still offering really decent protection. Now, the drawback of scale is if you attack from below, you might be able to work your blade in between the, um, the scales of the Yoma. But it's still very useful. Uh, you'd, see it, uh, you'd see it a lot in infantry. Because it just, it's it's um, effective, and it allows much more movement, which is of course a big ten of armor. Sca yeah, you see scale in all over the world. You saw it in Egypt. You saw it in um, Rome. Romans had scale. It was an it was a common kind of armor. Uh, moving on, kind of later in the medieval period, we get to chainmail, mail, real night shit. Uh, I'm sure you've all been you've been all you know itching to talk about it because that's I'm sure this is the kind of stuff you know and that's all right. Um, whoop. I almost dropped my ramen. Can't be having that. So, chainmail is exactly what it sounds. It is a it is a set made of interlocking bits of chain. It's really good to protect against slashing. This is when we get, when we start talking about chainmail and things like full plate armor, this is when, this is much later in the medieval period, where, metal, where metallurgy and smithing were starting to get much more advanced, and they could start reliably producing really high quality metal armor. In the early medieval period, you didn't see a lot of metal, because metal working is a very complex and difficult thing to do, and it requires a lot of time and practice and patience to get right. So, uh, metal armor came much later, but one of the benefits of metal is that it offers massive, massive, massive amounts of protection. Chainmail is no different. But chainmail shines is against slashes. I do not care how long you're willing to sit out in, in you how fucking long you're willing to sit out and just wail on chainmail armor with a sword. If you're just going for cuts, I'm sorry, your sword will break before the armor does. It just will. It's how it's, how it's gonna go. Sorry to tell you, that's how it be. The issue with chainmail is it's highly, uh, it's weak to thrusts. Now this is where we see a lot of the weapons developing side by side with armor. When chainmail started becoming more common and slashing became kind of useless, this is when we saw the development of things like the rapier, the tuck, or the estoc. These are heavy thrusting swords with very long, very thin blades, and what they were designed to do is get in between the seams of armor and through chainmail and strike at the knight underneath. Chainmail is especially susceptible to this because it's full of holes. It's just, it's full of holes. 
uh, rapiers, rapiers were legit, rapiers were literally made for this. Rapiers were designed to get in between the chain link, pull it apart, and stab through it. That's why thrusting weapons are so important. That's why my boy, the spear over there, is crazy. You, you, you get things like the spear, halberds, pole axes, like we talked about in the last episode, with long stabbing spikes. They would be invaluable, because they can get into the chinks in Alma. Now, chainmail, while you could use it on its own, a lot of times it would be another layer of protection, and it would be underneath our next, our next category of Alma, full plate mail. Full plate is the big daddy of Alma. Full plate in a medieval society, that's the end game. That's what you want. That's what you're striving for. Because full plate mail, you're good. You're done. You're basically, I'm not going to say invincible, because you aren't. You can still get dead. But it's just, it is a massive, massive benefit. Especially if it's well made. Well made plate mail is some of the craziest shit. This is where you see, this is where a lot of those terms come from, like pauldrons, curias, greaves, sabatins, gauntlets. That's bits of, that's, that's what these uh, terms, I'm going to be using them a lot. So, plate mail is exactly what you think, is exactly how it sounds. It is mail or armor made out of plates of steel. Now, what that would usually entail is, again, a curias, which is a two-piece, one piece for the entire front of the torso, one piece for the entire back of it, that you put together over the person. Uh, pauldrons, protecting the shoulders, gauntlets, and a lot of times, uh, protection on the arms. You'd have the uh, curias extending downward to protect your legs and upper thighs, and then you have your sabans. Now, I'm going to talk about something that we haven't really been touching on, Helmets. Helmets. Super useful. Why? They protect your face. Why is that useful? Your face is kind of important. Generally, it's got some important, you got some important bits up here. I don't know if you noticed. Your eyes, for instance. Your nose. Missing a nose was a very common injury, actually, in the medieval period. A lot of people were missing the tip of their nose. I'll let you, I'll let you imagine, imagine what the reason for that could possibly be. Uh, the mouth, you get, you get, you get hit by anything in the mouth, hurts like hell dude, it's not fun. That's where helmets come into play. They protect, they protect your noggin, your nut, your brain cage. Uh, helmets have been around forever, also ancient, also really useful. People have been protecting their heads since forever. That's why. Um, but this is where you start seeing, like, the standard knight helmet. This is also where we see um, the classic, uh, a lot of you guys will know, the crusader helmet. And I'm sure, uh, I'm sure that brings up some, some images for all of you. Uh, the crusader helmet, the bucket helmet, the meme helmet that you're all used to, that came about during this time. Now, I'm sure you all have that image in your head, or else I, I hope you do, 
Uh, if not, just look up Crusader Helmet and the, and the images that come up, like that's what I, that's it. That's what we're talking about. Now you see this, and that's a common um, that's a common uh, depiction because yeah, they were used a lot. So I'm going to use this as a jumping off point to describe some really important elements of helmets. For instance, eye slits. Eyes are a finicky area, especially in armor making, because you need your vision to be unimpeded, but you also need to protect your face orbs from being stabbed out, because a blind soldier is a useless soldier. So it's always been a balancing act of, okay, how do I make it so my, my eyes are protected, but I can also see shit. And what a lot of people landed on is slits. Armor, little armor slits. And those offered really good protection. Because it's really hard to land a, a hit through eye slits. Not impossible, excuse me, not impossible, mind you, but it was difficult. Uh, a lot of what you would also see is um, the eye slits would be raised. They'd be kind of on these little, um, they'd be raised out from the helmet, from the rest of the helmet, and that was so that if you missed, your blade would automatically ricochet off and away from your eyes. And that was, the, it was, it was kind of like ramps leading in, leading up and out of the helmet, ending in the slits. And that was, again, just to protect your face. Uh, you also see a lot of the time holes in the helmet. These were a lot. These were these were actually breathing holes, but um, they were always designed to be too small to fit any self-respecting blade through. If you could fit a, a, a blade through a breathing hole, even like a rapier, if not, like it do something. But that weapon isn't going to be useful. Like if you ever if if you designed a weapon to fit through breathing holes and helmets, that's all it's going to be good for. Because at that point, it would be so thin, it would basically be useless. Um, but it was, you had these breathing holes because if you just had a solid bit of metal around your head with just the eye slits, you're going to be short of breath because you can't get the, the carbon dioxide that you're exhaling out of the helmet and you can't get fresh oxygen in. So what's going to happen is you're going to get winded way, way faster because you can't, you can't get fresh air. So that's, everything on a helmet is pretty intentional. Uh, now we can move on to more stereotypical knight helmets, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. You've all seen, you know, a knight in shining armor. That helmet with the kind of, the pointy kind of front, kind of comes to a point, and it has the, uh, the bit that raises up. You can kind of, you can lift it to open up your eyes, and it has the, the breathing holes up front. Now, a lot of you will know the very traditional pointed look, and that again harkens back to defense, as all things do. When you have a very pointed, um, a very front pointed helmet, blows are going to glance off and away. If I go for the stab, and I miss, it's going to slide down the curved surface, and it's hopefully in a best case scenario, leave me open to attack because I've just bounced off. And that was... That's why you see that shape all the time. 
Now, moving on from full helmets, you'd also see half helmets. You'd see that are just protecting the top of the head, you know, the ears a lot of the time. Maybe there's a little a nose piece that comes down. But it left a lot of your face still open. Those were used earlier in the in the Middle Ages, in the medieval in the medieval period. There you go, Ethan. You can speak. And that was more for like common soldiers, just because one, it's cheaper, easy to make, less metal. It's not as complex. Doesn't have any moving parts, but still offered good protection for the top of your head and your ears, which are very high risk areas. So that's. That's armor. That's a basic overview of armor. It was built to be to be lightweight, as lightweight as it could be. You you was built to be defensible. Um, you normally wear it. Um, you circling back. You uh, plate mail. A lot of times, what you'd see is if you're going into like a proper war, you'd have plate mail on top of chain mail on top of gambeson. Because you just wanted as much stuff between you and the enemy as possible. Speaking of stuff between you, suck like shields. Yeah? Shields are, um. Shields are stupid useful. In any circumstance. In battle, anyway. Uh, I can't attest to the usefulness in social situations. Um. Maybe. I don't know. Go test it for yourself. Do some science. How effective are shields in social situations? Conversation starter, I guess. So, there's that. But I doubt, I doubt, I doubt a good shield is gonna get you a date. Unless she is a massive nerd like myself. In which case... Like, yes. That's a, that's a keeper right there. But I digress. Um, shields... Shields of a basic... Shields harken back to, like, spears. In, in the sense that they're, they're basically ingrained into us as a species. Because you think spears are, ba spears are basic weapons, but they're just like... They make sense to our monkey brain. It is a long, pointy stick. Like, yeah, that's... You use that, that's good. You, every, every society, every civilization... And this is not an exaggeration. Literally, every human civilization had a spear. The spear is universal. Long pointy stick, universal thing. Similarly, shields. Say a guy's coming at you with his long pointy stick and you you know you're an ancient you're an ancient dude and you don't got and you don't got no armor because you haven't figured out how to make leather yet and you haven't figured out how to make cloth or metal yet. Um, you kind of screwed, cause like you, animal skins. I don't know. They don't seem they don't seem very protective. But if you have a big honking piece of wood that you can put between you and the other guy, you're safe. You're done. You're good. You're golden. Get back out there. Um, and I think I think shields are actually undersold in modern day media. Specifically video games, looking at you. Because you see a lot of shields 
that don't offer that like you can put up a shield and it negates some damage. I don't care what kind of shield you're using. If you block a blow and you stop and you it, and it just hits the shield, that's it. That's done. That is all damage negated. That's just yeah, that's it. Just it. You're golden. And in video games, it's oh, it blocks some of the damage. No, it blocks all of it. Why? Because it's a big piece of metal or wood that that's in between you and the blade. It's not going to deal too much damage. Now you can look back and you see that shields. There were lots of different kinds of shields throughout history, and lots of people used them. Um, you see things like palmas, which are big round shields. You have things like sco um, scutums. Scutums, which is a funny word. Which are big, square, curved shields. And you'd have things like kite and heater shields. Kind of like a, like a, a kite shape, you know? With a point at the bottom. And, like, everyone has shields. Because they're useful as hell. So let's start. Let's 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 take a look at a lot of these um, these shields. There are a lot of there are a couple basic shapes a shield can take. You can have circle shield, oval shield, square shield, weird triangle sort of shield, and those are generally the shapes you're going to see most often when dealing with shields. Uh, the Romans. Romans had this down pat. The Greeks Greeks knew what the hell they were doing. Why? Because they had the phalanx. Ethan, what is a phalanx? I will tell you what a phalanx is. It is, it is a formation where it's you and your buddies, and you got spears and shields, and you're basically untouchable. This is what um, uh, the Greeks and Romans used a lot. And actually, you know, um, I'm sure you, I'm sure you all remember the Battle of um, the Battle of 300. You know where the uh, the Romans tried to the uh, the Greeks rather tried to stop the Phoenicians. They used phalanxes. Was it the Romans? Was it the Romans? Or the Who was the Battle of 300? I I I know I'm a bad history buff. I should know this, but I it has always been my vice that the, the Battle of Thermopylae. It's Greek. I was right. It is Greek. I, I, I get the Greeks and Romans confused all the time. I know I shouldn't. But they were so similar. Cut me some slack. The Greeks... 300 Greek dudes fought off more than 10,000 Phoenician dudes using the phalanx. Or a similar... a similar sort of tactic. So a phalanx is when it's you and the buddies, and your buddies, your war buddies, and you all stand in a square or a rectangle, and you all have shields, and then you all have spears or pikes. A pike is just a really long spear. Like spears are like five, six, seven feet. Pikes are eight, nine, ten feet. What you and what you do is you'd hunker down. You'd usually you can like the front the front line would get down on one knee and put their shields up, and they'd overlap the edges with the guys next to them so that it formed a solid wall. The guys behind you, they'd put your shields up and protect 
the guys in front of them by putting their shields in front of them, and then they overlap their shields. And then, it, what it would do, by doing this with all sides, and then on the inside, protecting the top, where you overlapped the shields, what you effectively do is you make a near-impenetrable shield wall around yourself and your battalion. And then what you do is, through the tiny spaces between the shields, you stick your pikes out, and you just start moving forward towards the enemy. The phalanx was a massively successful tactic, because it's so hard to break up. The, uh, the phalanx used a, a shield called a, um, a, a palmer. I believe was the uh, the proper the proper term for it. Uh, you'll you'll hear me click clacking a lot in these episodes, and that's just it's me double checking my facts before I say anything too stupid. Um, yes, the Palma was a one used by the Greeks, who also used the um, the phalanx maneuver. The Palma is a big rounded shield, usually with a metal protrusion in the middle, a metal um, a metal half a uh, metal like dome in the middle to deflect hits. And that's what you'd use, and you'd overlap those rounded shields, and you'd basically be impenetrable. Um, another, the Palmer, and I'm, I'm gonna use Palmer as a general term for just a big round shield, because that's that's the easiest way to, to refer to it. Another kind of person, uh, Palmer's, I'll, I'll say something as well about the Roman Palmer's at least, they had um, a lot more metal in them then they had metal but they were actually primarily made out of wood now you'd have that metal protrusion in the middle and sometimes they had a metal ring around them but the body of the palma was made out of wood and a lot of times that's all you needed you just needed a good solid body of wood because oftentimes that was enough that was all you needed and a lot of times you didn't even need the metal turning to the vikings and I'm talking historically accurate Vikings, not whatever the fuck the media is trying to sell you today. Looking at you, Assassin's Creed, what the hell is that? Um, they used those kinds of round shields. They used palmas that were made entirely of wood with no metal. Now, why? It's actually kind of ingenious. If you take a swing at a palma, and you hit the edge, the very edge. Your blade contacts the edge of the palma, and it cuts. That's it. The guy holding the shield has won, because if you cut into the side of a palma, of a round shield, a wooden round shield, your blade is gonna get stuck in the wood, and from there, the guy can just twist his shield and disarm you. And a lot, and that's what you saw a lot with Viking shields. You'd see really deep cuts in the sides of the shield where he'd caught blades. And that was always fascinating to me, how they would, how they could, how they could do that. That that tactic of using a shield to disarm someone by getting it literally stuck in your shield. Now, uh, moving on to more serious shields, you'd have the scutum. The scutum is either, I think it's Roman, Roman, yes, I am correct. The Roman and Italic peoples. 
Um, so like Italy and that general area. A scutum is the closest to what people today would call um, a tower shield. Uh, where, where essentially what it was was um, a very tall, sturdy shield that protected most of the entire body. Uh, a scutum was a, it's large and rectangular and very tall with a, and it curved inward. Uh, and the sides, not the top. It, it curved on the x-axis, inward. And what you do is, you'd hold it in front of your body, and it protected essentially your entire torso. Now, this was a, ma this was a massive benefit, because it put just that a wall of wood in between you and the other guy. Scutums would later become, you know, tower shields, or what we refer to as tower shields, in modern day pop culture. And they were also used in formations a lot. Because what you could do is, because of their more uniform, squared off shape, you could actually make literal scutum walls, becoming almost perfectly defensible, more so than a phalanx with polymers. If you just look up scutum formations and you see those guys with their shields it's insane because it's just a box it's just a box of wood and you're not getting through that box of wood interestingly enough this is still used today now i know you're thinking ethan what what do you mean it's still used today riot shields when the police call in a riot force the riot squad, and the guys come up with the riot, with riot shields, they use the same formation as ancient Roman legionnaires. This kind of shield, coupled with this formation, has survived to the modern day, and if that doesn't say something about its effectiveness, I don't know what will. That's why I love Scutums. I love Scutums and Tower Shields in the concept. They're always my favorite kind of shield, just because of how fucking cool they were. Now, moving on uh, to later periods, we get things like the Kite and Heater Shield. The Kite and Heater Shield are what we think of when we think she Knight Shield. You know? Like what a knight would use. A Kite Shield is a long, kind of a triangle. The Kite Shield would be long, it had a, uh, a, it's teardrop shaped, that's what it is. It is shaped like a very long, like a long teardrop with the rounded part at the top. And you'd use it, you'd strap it to the back of your, I didn't, I, I should be mentioning more how these shields are held as well. Um, cause there are different, for instance, the scutum, you'd be hold, you'd hold like, um, like you're pushing a shopping cart. The handle was, um, horizontal and you grab it kind of in that fashion and you just hold it in front of you. And that's how you held this. A, a kite shield would be more strapped to your forearm with um, some straps and you would have it more as um, less your hand and more your whole arm moving as a defense. Kite shields, a lot of people make the argument 
that kite shields are the very best shields. Now, of course, there is no objective best in anything. But, if I had to choose the best shield, the kite shields would probably be my top pick. Because it is so versatile. It's useful. It's massive. It provides great protection. These things were these things could be as long as as long as your torso, or maybe longer. And they were quick. You could maneuver them easily. You could. They were great. Uh, they were great defense, and you can fight around them. Kite shields were massively, massively useful. Now, what we also see is the heater shield, the kite shield's little brother. The the heater shield is the um. It's that stereotypical shield shape. This is the kind of shield you'd see on family crests. With the, uh, the three points on top, and then the rounded to a point bottom. That's a heater shield. And these we used usually along, sh uh, along shide, along shide, you see? Alongside kite shields. Because what they were is they were much shorter, much lighter as a result of that, much smaller, uh, both are made out of metal, by the way. Kite and heater shields are usually metal and wood. Um, or they have the wood with the uh, metal rim. But heater shields were used more often by cavalry, the guys on horses, because they were smaller, easier to move, and much more maneuverable while on horseback. And that's, another, and that's what you'd see in warfare a lot. Now, moving on to our, our final shield of the day, we have the buckler. The buckler, people see it and they think, that's kind of strange, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call, I, I wouldn't think of that as a shield, I wouldn't th think that would be very effective. And I can see where you're coming from, most definitely. It's a very small shield. The buckler is round, with a big metal protrusion in the middle, about the size of a dinner plate. You know? It's not big. Heater, like... The smallest shield we've talked about today, other than, this, other than the buckler, is the heater shield. And that at least was like a uh, foot, foot and a half. The, um, the buckler, the larger ones reached a foot in diameter. But, see, here's the thing. The shields we've talked about so far were very clearly war shields. Shields used in war and combat. The buckler was an everyman shield. The buckler is what you'd use walking if you're out on the town. It is of um, an Italian shield. Represent. I am very Italian, for those of you who don't know. Um, used because A, it's small and it's portable and it's really useful. And B, it was used because around the time it gained prevalence. You started seeing this was when the switch was being made to thrusting to thrusting swords, rapiers and estocks and tucks. This is where uh, you you wouldn't see long swords, you wouldn't see arming swords. Largely, they were obsolete because of how far armor had advanced. Circling back, 
you saw thrusting shields, you saw thrusting protective shields because thrusting weapons were all that was useful anymore and no one was really carrying around arming or long swords because that's not what was effective at the time. Bucklers are used a lot, uh, you see them a lot in fencing as well, in, um, even in modern day, because that's what they're designed to be used with. And they were uh, very much a common man's shield. This is what you do when you're out in the town, going to market, you know, just in case kind of thing. And that's what you would use. Um, moving back, let's let's circle back, and we can finally we can round out this episode. I've been yammering at you for almost an hour now, so I you know settle in. Um, we'll 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 move back, and we'll talk about weapons. My my forte, my fort, if you will. Now, armor, I've been saying thrusting swords, thrusting swords, thrusting swords, thrusting swords, Estoc, Tuck, Rapier. That's what you were seeing. Because, yeah, that's what you were seeing. Like, that's... That's what was being used. But I feel like I should start elaborating a little bit more on why. Why? The, uh, you started seeing... You started seeing this because if you look at if we look at armor and how it's advancing, slashing weapons were no longer effective because it's metal. They were designed, thrusting swords were designed to get in between the seams of really big heavy metal armor. But the thing is, that requires a lot, a lot, a lot of precision. And of course, swords aren't ever the only thing out on the battlefield. This is where you saw the rise and prevalence of halberds, which were long spear weapons with axe heads on them. And an interesting thing about halberds, if you look at the blade shape, the shape of the axe blade specifically, you saw that they were curved in a very interesting way. They were almost, they were curved towards the guy using them. Uh, what I mean by this is, um, uh, how can I explain this? The top part of the axe blade was farther from the haft than the bottom part was. The, um, the blade went out at a 45 degree angle approximately, sometimes, a lot of times the angle was a lot less, away from the user. And a lot of times you'd also see scoops. The blade would be like the, the blade would be scooped. And this was because halberds were used in formations, much like what we saw with the with the phalanx and legionnaires. And not exactly the same. Uh, a lot of times you wouldn't usually use a halberd with a shield. It would just be the um, it would just be you and your buddies shoulder to shoulder with your halberds poking out. But these this the curve the uh, the slant of the blade and the scoops make it more effective at swinging up and down. Or at least this is the predominant theory. They, they um, Because you're not swinging your halibut all over the place like an axe, because you got your buddies immediately to your left and right, and it'll get in the way. You'd be thrusting, and then you'd also be cutting downwards. And that's what halibuts were used for, to get at the shoulder blade and the neck, where there was um, usually a lot of uh, weak spots. 
And of course, yes, it had the long thrusting point, which is a it's a it's a thrusting tip. It's what you used against heavy armor to spear long pointy even over this. You know, you know how it be, you know how it goes, long pointy thing. But a lot of what we also see in response to heavy metal armor, this is where the mace came into its own. The mace as a weapon. I'm not I'm not talking modern day mace. I'm talking ancient mace. I'm talking the scaly shit. I'm talking heavy metal bit on a stick. Um, it's also where you saw the rise of things like warhammers. Lucernes were huge in this time. A lucerne is similar to a halberd, but instead of an axe head, it had a hammer head. A small hammer, a small spiked hammer. With again long thrusting, uh, long thrusting point. Lucernes were designed to break armor. Literally, it was designed to break the steel of armor coming down. Because it's on a very, it's a pole arm. It's on a very long handle, and the the you use it like a lever, and the force produced would be enough to puncture right through steel. That's kind of terrifying when you think about it. But this is when you started seeing hammers and maces. Especially maces. Because maces are scary and very effective. Um, you wouldn't normally see maces with spikes. That would be more of a Morningstar territory. And that uh, those would be used more against l uh, more lightly armored opponents. Because spikes and sharp edges and pointy bits don't usually work on metal armor as well. Especially not long, um, thin spikes. And I mean that in a, in, in, in a, on a ball like that. Obviously long, thin spikes worked insanely well in spears, because it's just one of them trying to get a hit. What you normally see is, um, what I think the best representation of a mace is, go up, go and look up a German mace. A German, uh, flanged mace. F-L-A-N-G-E-D. Flanged or flanged, I'm not too sure, I don't speak German. This is the stereotypical mace, and if you look, it has these sort of protrusions. These little, um, um, what, what, what should I call Fins, we'll call them fins, metal fins sticking out. And what those were used for is concentrating the heft and weight of the blow onto a smaller area, making it more likely to break. Maces were used because... You can't cut through heavy metal armor, but you can sure as hell crush it. You take a mace and you swing that bastard hard enough, what a lot of times you wanted to do was crush and cave in the, the chest piece or the helmet of your enemy. If you get hit by a mace in the head, I don't care how light the blow was, your head is going to ring like a bell. You're going to be disoriented, you're going to be hurt, you're going to be dazed, you're going to be dead. Maces capitalized on this. They'd swing and they'd crush metal. And that's what they were used for, that's why they were common in later years. Okay. That, I, I'm going to, I think that's, that's... That's gonna be it for today. I'm I'm going off for an hour. I'm looking at the time. I'm looking at the time period. I'm looking at the uh, timeline. I'm in the at you for enough now. 
but this is a nice long episode, I thought, to I do, you know, because I've been meaning to do it for a while, and I thought a nice long one to keep us all occupied while we slowly go stir-crazy from sitting inside all day. Um, it was nice seeing you again here, as always. It's it's always a wonderful time. It's always nice to do these. I will see you next time, good friends. Until then, keep your blades sharp and your minds sharper. See you next time.